Welcome to Fringe Legal, where we explore innovation in action. I'm your host, Abhijat Sarasmuth, and in each episode, we dive into conversations with changemakers who share ideas, insights, and lessons from their journey. Join us as we put theory into practice and shed light on the world of innovation like never before. I am thrilled today to have the CEO of Motive, which you can find at esgmotive.com, Kai Gray on the show. We'll be talking about uh, ESG, what it is, the impact of it, and how you can put it into practice. Um, Kai, thanks so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Great to be here. Before we do get into the weeds of everything, if you wouldn't mind, tell everyone a little bit more about what Motive does. So we have the context around that. Sure. I describe Motive as a tech-enabled advisory service, helping corporate clients and private market clients, private equity and venture capitalists, manage ESG processes. So ESG is impacting companies in different ways. And we have found that what we do really appeals to private market investors in particular and their portfolio companies. So we do a lot of work with PE firms and their own portfolio companies. Welcome. And I think we'll get into, into that in a lot yes. more detail. But sure. And you obviously co-founded and now I'm CEO of, of Motive. Let's go back right to the beginning. So I'm sure most people sure. have heard the term ESG in some form or fashion in the last few years, but and tell us what does it mean sure. and maybe sure. what, what it isn't, uh, just so we can set the stage. For the yeah. In, in fact, that, that's a great, what it isn't is, is almost a, a better place to start. And ESG, it's amazing right now that it's become almost a mainstream term. And incidentally, it has become a very politicized term and we're seeing some fallout from that. And, but the origins of ESG really go back to a lot of people point back to apartheid South Africa as being the sort of the origin of this type of investing. So in apartheid South Africa, it was the first instance events that, that people generally agree on that you had an impactful investment strategy where you had a lot of endowment that were trying to divest of their assets in South Africa in protest. And that sort of morphed into, along the timeline, into what are called sin stocks. So alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and various lists start to be, become created to try to identify different things. ESG today is the culmination of a lot of different, what I'll call movements. So whether it's corporate social responsibility, it's impact investing, it's sustainable investing. Right now, it, to, a bit unfortunately, people use ESG to refer to all of those things, but the origins get back to this idea around impact investing, that, that where you put your money makes a difference and you can affect change by the way you invest your money. So ESG as a standalone thing really developed as a risk profiling tool. ESG is really a measure of transparency. How much information do you know about a company before you invest in it? And that's why ESG is called an extra financial metric, as opposed to the financial metrics, which are standardized and everyone can read and understand how a company's performing. So this was a measure of transparency 
not of good or bad companies. In the what isn't ESG, ESG is not a a measure of whether a company is good or bad, which is a very subjective thing, is 100 plus metrics that are really looking at how a company operates. And if, and there's certainly, there's environmental, social governance. When you think about the governance, the G in ESG, you're talking about things like ethics and board makeup and audit committees and independent board members and a list of things that are purely around the operations of a company. How good is this company at operating itself and how transparent are they? There's a very interesting debate in the ESG world around ExxonMobil is often included in most ESG funds. And this is used by opponents of ESG as evidence of why ESG doesn't work. Because the opponents are really thinking of ESG as this measure of good versus bad, right? and, and particularly on an environmental axis. But Exxon does a very good job of publishing their data. So Exxon publishes lots of data. They're very transparent about what they do. And because of that, they generally have high scores with the rating agencies. And so they get included in a lot of funds. People get very worked up about this, that how, you know, how, how can Exxon be an ESG company and Tesla not, right? Or, and this is the debate. In fact, I think Elon Musk made that exact sort of argument. And the reality is all around transparency, right? So Tesla does not publish a lot of their information. And so when you think of the ESGs, it's purely a spectrum of good to bad. It will lead you in the wrong direction. And you'll have this. If you think of ESG as a risk tool, it's very accurate. And so when you think of companies that, an obvious example is Enron from the early 2000s, where had they, had you looked at an ESG report on Enron, you would never invest in them, right? They, there was no independent board members. There was no audit committees. There was, all of the things that came to life were all rep, represented in ESG metrics that, that are currently evaluated. I think that it's important for people to understand that ESG is used today as a catch-all for sustainability, for green investing for a large number of things. But the reality is ESG is really a, a group of metrics that started life as a way for financial services companies to create very specialized funds uh, along different axes. So, yes. That's really helpful. Let, let me summarize just so I have a good understanding because that context is really helpful. So I think ESG, as you framed it as a a transparency metric to assess risk and suitability, as I think you said, we call it extra financial metric. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess the thing I underline in my notes is it's a objective metric. So we veer away from good or bad on pick any axis, whether it's a governance or environmental axis to objectively out of these 200 plus metrics where, what, what's your level of maturity, maybe a better way to frame it. So that all makes sense. Uh, I guess one of the, uh, of two natural questions, at least me arise from that. One is there's a lot of metrics there, 200 plus metrics. There's a lot to manage <laughs> right. and report on or do anything on. 
Uh, so we'll come back to where you start in a second. I think that'll probably be a whole, whole conversation yes. and so on. But if ESG is a risk or a financial metric, is it better suited for companies of a certain size and scale? Or should all companies, public, private, services companies, and bear in mind that majority of the listeners to this podcast are working in a law firm, which of course is a business, but it's very service-oriented business. How much of what you discuss and what you highlighted should those types of businesses care about? They're not seeking outside investment. And of course, every business is looking to get investment because investment has many different facets to it. But yeah, how, how much should those companies care about ESG? Yeah, it, that's a very good question. And for smaller companies, for, for startups, or and, and I don't know what the exact number is, but there's the, the notion of the ability to affect change. So if, if you're a 20 person firm, you're not going to have the apparatus to fill e, a lot of ESG metrics. Your board is probably made up of all these sort of insiders. There's no independent audit committees. So a lot of it doesn't apply. And I think for startups, which are, are we are one and we also work with others, um, the reality is they're just trying to stay alive, right? It's not, they're not trying to optimize ESG metrics. So I think that when you start to get to the point where you work, 50 employees or your revenues in the five to 10 million range, then you can start to think about these things. But again, not everything applies, right? So there's certainly things that every company can do to be, let's see, better stewards of things and, and be conscious of their hiring practices is a particular one or the sort of their efficiencies around certain things. But it, it doesn't make sense for a small company to to spend their very hard-earned capital on doing things that really won't move the needle. I think we talked to a company and they were, they were adamant. We came in in the middle of their ESG program um, and they were adamant about converting their fleet of vehicles over to electric vehicles, and which, which is great. However, they had a very small fleet. And so the cost that they were going to incur to do this was really large. And it, it honestly didn't move the needle in the environmental aspect. It, their money was much better spent at looking at employee training or health and safety or a number of other programs that would have a more direct impact and be more aligned with what the company was trying to do. So I think what we always encourage clients to do and anyone who's listening is evaluate the, the company, where they are first, what they're trying to do, and then see, are there certain areas in the ESG metrics that make more sense? It's probably a good time to talk about the, how companies should start on their yeah. ESG journey, right? Because you have so many metrics, it, it leads to a lot of confusion. And uh, an important thing to understand about, around ESG is that the notion of materiality. And so materiality is the, I would say the cornerstone of ESG. It also gets misused frequently. So materiality changes by industry. So a mining company has a very different set of materiality metrics than say a software company or 
even a, a law firm, right? You, you cannot use the same metrics and apply them universally and say, oh, this mining company is not good because, because this law firm does things much better than them, right? These, these are, you're truly comparing apples to oranges in this case. And one thing that's very important if you're starting out in ESG is saying, okay, we're in this industry. What do our peers look like? And then what we see quite frequently, and I would say as, as a company, motive gets called in at various stages of, of this. Sometimes it's at the beginning, which is great. And we can help companies craft a strategy uh, from, from the beginning. And, and we love that because we can employ sort of the motive way to do that. Often we get called in halfway through or somewhere along the arc. And what we commonly see is our clients will give us their materiality. So they say, okay, we, the first thing we did is we conducted a materiality assessment and we came up with these 35 things we need to do. And they're all priority one issues. And we surveyed our customers. We surveyed our board. We surveyed our employees and the list goes on. And here's all the things they care about. And it, it's the full spectrum of issues that you know, us as humans all, all face. And when you ask them and say, okay, what's your history of getting large projects done in this multitask way? The answer is we can handle a few at a time, right? And it's, okay, you have 10 years worth of work that you, you scoped out. And so what happens is that I think it happens often is that it's so overwhelming, you just don't get started. Or you, you continue to debate these things. And so what we advise companies to do is to really focus on four or five, maybe six things that are truly important to them. And sure, in the fullness of time, they can go through the whole list. But the way to get started is figuring out what are one sort of the, the low-hanging fruit that you might have. And what are the things that are really going to impact your company from an ESG perspective and align with your business objectives? Because a lot of companies leave that part out there. They think that they have to employ ESG in a parallel track to business objectives. And the reality is yeah. that, that the two are actually much more combined. So you yeah. can employ ESG in a way that's truly aligned with your objectives without sacrificing anything. And, and especially when you call the list down to a very manageable side. So, okay, yeah. we will do this one and then this one and this one. And at that point, you come and say, okay, we can do that, right? We can staff that. We can, we can track that. You, you, you can't staff 35 projects. You're never going to fund that as a company. And yeah. And the reality is you're just not going to do any of that. And uh, I think... Yeah. As you're talking about this, of course, all of that makes sense. And I'm just processing this, all the information, but for one, because of where we started as ESG, as a risk assessment tool, as an investment assessment vehicle, let's call it, um, of course, it has a, a greater bearing on actually, other than just investment around credits and things like that. And yeah, it's, this isn't specific to ESG, but of course, whether you can take on and complete a project and manage that project well enough with your team and of course, anyone has a magic wand, no one has solved all the problems of the organizations, but you do have to prioritize. You do have to pick and choose 
And I love the framing of where will you move the needle the most when it comes to ESG. I guess, are are there, and I'm assuming they're probably like sector benchmarks or agencies and, and aggregators and things like that, that can give you a better indication of your maturity or your benchmark compared to your peers. Because yes, yes, of course, the, what's important to a, an oil and gas company is not probably and shouldn't be the same as what's important to a law firm or to a, a software company. So I, I'm assuming those benchmarks do ex- exist and they can leverage companies like you guys to be able to help guide through that because my experience with benchmarks, they're usually as much as they call benchmarks, they're never that simple to, to understand, yeah, especially when you're looking at benchmark over 200 different uh, metrics, and KPIs. Yeah. And I, I think it, it may be helpful just to, to take it a step back and, and, and talk a little bit about how ESG scores are formulated and yeah. the, there are ESG rating agencies, and these are companies that, that basically scrape as much data as they can about a company to, to answer questions. So to fill out these 200 metrics, when we think about rating agencies, think about consumer credit rating agencies. Yes. It's the same thing, except for there's, instead of three big ones, there's eight of them. And so you have, and there's actually a lot more, I should be very clear. You, you, there's Bloomberg and S&P Global and MSCI and Sustainalytics and the, the list goes on. And they're in the business of scoring companies and selling that data to the financial services companies. So where you see this manifest itself is if you go and, and you look at ETFs or, or funds, you go to BlackRock, for instance, and you see their iShares funds, you'll see iShares, MSCI, top 25 in a particular area. Yeah. And the rating agencies are, have come up with their own definition of materiality for an industry. And they're applying that and the scores are all very different. So MNCI uses a, a, a letter scoring up to AAA, Arabesque uses a number score, I mean, the list goes on, right? And so, so a lot of the calls are just, I don't understand how these scores work. And to manage the scores, you have to understand how the rating agencies are scoring you. So again, it really like that sort of consumer credit agency where they're, they're looking for car payments on time. And you say, I pay my power bill every month. Why is my score so low? So you keep missing your, your car payment. Well, the ESG folks are the same. I'll give you and the listeners a, a very concrete example about how, so ISS, which is a very big rating agency, they prioritize stated goals and tracking to that goal. So they, they want companies to say, this is our goal. This is how we're doing on our goal. Whereas MSCI is looking at it at a, an absolute number. So that they, they want to see that you publish 35. Yeah. And that's the number. Whereas, so ISS wants to see this over time tracking. They don't really care about the number. 35 doesn't mean anything to them or whatever number we, right. we choose. And so understanding that is, is important when you're dealing with the particularly if you're trying to manage scores, but, and they only focus on publicly traded companies. It's, I, I can imagine a lot of your listeners are, are working, their clients are private companies. 
And so they don't have the same sensitivity to scores, but it's still important to understand how the ESG rating agencies function in the background. For private companies, what happens is, and, and this is, again, where we get called in, is they're in the supply chain of a tier one customer. So if right. you're, if you make widgets for a big publicly traded company, you're going to get a, a sort of a demand letter for your ESG data. It might be called uh, sustainability data, it, might, it has different names, but right. that's really the impetus for private companies to involve themselves with ESG is because there's a very strong likelihood that if not now, in the very near future, they're going to get a letter from their customers, their enterprise customers, saying we have to have this or you can't bid on this project. So again, hey, you keep using ExxonMobil as an example, but ExxonMobil, you cannot bid on their projects without ESG and ESG report attached to the RFP. You know, that supply chain pressure is, I, I would say, is very similar to companies as investor pressure that's coming into the public companies. And if you're a, uh, a manufacturer of something, there's a high likelihood that you're getting asked these questions at some point in, in the sales process, in the RFP process, in the existing customer life cycle. So I think that it really, it, it depends on, on what kind of company you have, but you're seeing very similar pressure come in from on all sides. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense because, and as you're actually saying some of these names, many of those names are familiar and yeah, you're right. There are many other agencies and rating companies like Moody and so on. And that's right too. Even the demand letters and things that make sense. Yeah, very fun. That's right. Even us as motive, we've created a scoring algorithm using derivative data and it's more for internal purposes, our own benchmarking, but it's, it, there's many rating agencies out there. There's a, there's eight big ones. There's three really big ones. That's how it, that's the, the hierarchy of the rating agencies. On the other side, you have the standards and the frameworks. And so th these are not, and that's like the, dis are, that's a discussion, that's the disclosure standards and sustainability minority standards and all of that. Th that's right. And except for an ESG. One of the most confusing and frustrating parts for anyone who's in it is that there are no standards. There are um, mere suggestions. And so you, you have groups nice. like use nothing but acronyms, TCFD and GRI and the list yeah. goes on. And they've all published. GRI and CDP. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, but they've all published their standard for companies to follow. Yeah. What... what what doesn't occur is the rating agencies don't consult with the standards or the framework builders. And so the client very often will start following the framework of GRI or TCFD, which is great. I don't discourage it, but they get very disheartened when their scores are low. And they say, no, we followed this exactly. And yeah, this rating agency, they don't care what TCFD said. They don't care what GRI says. They've come up with their own. Right their own algorithm. And, and people often ask me if there are going to be standards. And I think there will, but they will not be coming from the rating agencies because there's no incentive for the rating agencies to develop a standard. And so it's yeah. going to come from a mixture of corporate 
entities, the, the big Fortune 100 companies who've invested a lot in yeah. ESG get together and say, no, this is how we're going to do this. And more work on the sort of framework and consolidating that, which has happened over time. Um, that, you know, and I think over the next, I'm going to give myself a lot of leeway here and say over the next five years that right. there, um, there, there's going to be a standard, but it's yeah. not going to come from the rating agencies themselves. Got it. Okay. So we've covered a lot of what the ecosystem is. So we, we looked at the, the fundamentals, what is it, what it's not, the ecosystems around the framework, standard agencies, and then there are a whole bunch of tools that, uh, and resources and so on that, that's not touching to today. Um, I think we first keep talking about this for hours. Otherwise, let's have you step into the shoes of someone who's just joined a, let's say a large company for our example, large meaning something suitable for ESG purposes uh, where it should be something that's important to them. Where do you begin? Where do you start? What's the thought process? I would go back to what I said earlier and I would think about what my business did and what's important to it. And then what do we have as business objectives? Um, and understand that first before I, I run out and conduct materiality assessments and hire people, um, as much as I need to say that, but that's this, I would take stock of what the company's trying to do and really think a lot on that. Where can we move the needle? So do we have an opportunity, let's say to diversify our workforce? Is that something that's important and something that we can do? And I'll, going back to the mining example, that's not something that a lot of mining companies have, have the ability to diversify their workforce. It's a very male dominated industry. Even if they said, we want to make percent of our employees women, I'm not sure that they would have that ability. And I, I would think about the things that as a company we could control that are fully under our control and we're not relying on a third party to do any of these things. And then I really think critically about, about how to narrow the lens and say, okay, we're going to have three, three initiatives or maybe four. And just to get started, you can even just do one say, okay, we're really going to augur it around this one thing and that's it. So that, that's how I would start if I were thrown in to a, a sort of a new situation. And we, as a company, we certainly find ourselves in that situation where, yeah, so, okay, where do we start? And like a lot of things, I think people overthink it quite a bit and create a lot of work. The reality is that most people can assess pretty quickly. And I, by that, weeks or months, not years, where a company is, what they can change, what's important if they change, that is putting recycling bins everywhere. Is that something that moves the needle for us? Do we have that much waste? Yeah, maybe not, but, and in our industry, how do our peers compare? What are they doing? What are our customers looking for? Yeah. My, my first stop is going to, would be to go to my customers and say, Hey, what do you care about? What do you want your vendors to look like uh, along these lines? So yeah. that's probably my first call is to my customers to figure out what they care about. So I at least in, make sure that's represented. Yeah. Um, 
then I would be very clear with my goals around ESG. If the goal is to increase your scores, that's fine, but that's your goal. There's a lot of pressure, I think, for companies to, to put out a statement that they're changing the world in some way, that they're doing this for righteous reasons. And that's a marketing element, but it's important to, when you're establishing your, your goals, to, to be realistic and say, no, we, we, we need our scores to be higher so we get included in these ETFs or that, whatever the case is. And so establishing the goals is something that it's weird because it, most companies have pretty rigorous goals around everything except right. for ESG. I rarely see companies who have stated goals other than we just want to get better. And I always laugh because can you imagine a CFO like right. he's asked, sort of, what, what, what are the goals? So we just want to be better. Like, yeah, right. so, so I guess your key questions are speak to your customers, figure out what's important to them. And I'll did both existing customers and prospective customers or where you might want yes. to be. And then you're doing a introspective into, and I love the stoic approach of what is hundred percent in our control, where we're not reliant on anyone or anything else that we can control. Uh, then you're looking at the realism lens. So the example of if we wanted 50% of our workforce to be diverse, is there enough people available in the world or in our market that could fulfill that criteria and you adjust the goals accordingly. And then I guess lastly, then you're thinking about the practicality, feasibility, cost of it all, right? Because yep. things yep. take time, money, resources to implement and put in practice. And I, I do think a very dangerous path to go down is to make sort of bold statements and initiatives that will scare away senior management. They, oh no, that sounds so complex and so expensive that we just don't want to go there. All right. I, I think for companies just starting out and, and for ESG managers at those companies, which many times are, are in-house counsel, um, it's important to help educate and bring people along and do this at, at a manageable pace. That's not, hey, we need to spend $5 million next year to do these things. That'll be a very quick no. But if you say, no, we're going to do this incrementally, it gets a lot more support. Right. And then just to start wrapping things up as much as of time, two parting questions. A, does your answer change at all if I tell you the reality of you have a limited budget? Congratulations. You already have a job. <laughs> you are now also the ESP manager. And yes. by the way, you don't get a pay rise. You do have to do more work. <laughs> and just so you know. There's not really any budget for this. Welcome aboard. Does your hands have changed in how you made your person? Yes, it, it does. And I think you very accurately described the most ESG programs around the world, which is exactly that. Yes, if you, you said, Kai, great, welcome aboard. You have a very limited budget to do anything. I would say the thing that you should focus on, and this is probably important to your listeners, is around policies. Though ESG puts a lot of emphasis around policies. I think they're more than 10% of the metrics collected are, do you have this policy? Do you, do you have a human rights policy? Do you have a child labor policy? Do you have a health and wellness policy? And the list goes on. And that's something that 
companies have complete control over. They can create mm-hmm. a policy. It's not onerous, typically, on, to craft these policies. And it's something that will have a, a material impact on your ESG program. And I think it's something that we typically do is, is quickly assess the companies, their policies. And companies have, the thing about the companies from a legal perspective, the policies that most companies have, right? You'll have a sort of a privacy policy. You'll have a, you may have an ethics policy, the sort of some sort of GDPR type policy. Yeah. That's a lot of times that's it. And from an ESG lens, there's another 20 plus questions or 20 plus policies that, that they're looking for. So I think I would start there because it's, it's not free to create policies, but it's pretty close. You can, if you're a lawyer, you can write these policies. If you're a layman, you can hire a lawyer to write these policies. And yeah. it's not, we're not targeting months of work. We're talking about, no, you, you need to have a sort of an anti-slavery policy. And that could be as simple as we are against modern slavery. Yeah, it's not very eloquent, but you at least, you create a statement and you publish that. And so that's absolutely what I would do. Limited budget, just starting out. Awesome. Good. And then I guess two, two questions to wrap up on. First one, are there particular industries that are, and let's use words to use treat that as you might That's the best word I have for it. So, yeah. Yes, I think that again, every industry is grappling with ESG in a different way, and the impact is felt differently. I do think that that manufacturing, in particular, it, it would there's a lot of emphasis on the E in ESG, and if you're a company that's producing a lot of emissions or using a lot of raw materials, it's there's a lot of sensitivity and exposure to ESG. And so I think that, again, it's, it's why you see the big oil companies have very robust ESG programs. BP has a, a very large program. But I think the manufacturing of raw materials is that industry is very sensitive to it. I know that's a pretty broad scope. I would say on the other end of the spectrum, the agencies, like a lot of your listeners, law firms, accounting firms, professional agencies don't have nearly the exposure and sensitivity to ESG. Well, there's certain components of ESG around diversity and worker rights and health and wellness that apply to all companies. Personally, they're not, there's not a distinct emphasis on your accounting firm's carbon emissions, which are likely yeah. to be so low that you can't graph them. But yes, I think manufacturing, and you're also seeing if, if you're consuming a lot of raw material. So if you're an airline, you're, right. this is a huge deal for you. And that's why you're seeing them all to make statements about going to, to different fuel sources and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, trends wise, um, you already gave yourself a five year runway on things okay. changing, um, but yeah. any other notable trends and we don't have to have a sort of long list, but. Well, so three high level ones that you think people should be keeping an eye on. Yeah, I I think some of the trends are certainly in the United States, ESGs are a very politicized term to the point where Larry Fink from BlackRock has said he's going to stop using the term. And he's largely thought of as the godfather of ESG. And because it's become, as he said, it's become weaponized. Very, anyone who, 
when I hear politicians talk about ESG on either side, you realize that they don't know what it is, but it's a very handy acronym to either love or hate. And so I think that there's a good chance that the word, the term ESG goes away, that we start to think about it as impact. That's my vote. I hope we go there. But so I, I think it's likely that ESG will morph into a different term. The, I think it was the CEO of Coca-Cola was being interviewed about ESG and he, and he said, if the term ESG becomes too toxic, we're just going to call it something else and do the same thing. Right. And that's what I think is going to happen. The other big trend that we're going to see is going to be increased regulation around it. And so the EU drives this, but the US will adopt it in North America in general and really is to combat greenwashing, right? So, mm-hmm. so that what you say is factual. So I think we're going to move into an era where you have stock to compliance type measures. Yeah around your ESG reporting. So if you say you use this many emissions, this many tons of CO2, you have to actually, it has to be true. And right now it's a bit of the wild west. It's easy to claim a lot of things. Very few people are auditing that. And I think that's going to change. So I think there's going to be a lot of in the audit process. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. Um, by Gray, the CEO and co-founder of Motive, uh, which you can learn more about at esgmotive.com. Um, and I'll also include um, both that as well as uh, a link to Kai's LinkedIn profiles. Uh, um, I'll take for you, Kai. I'm sure you'll be happy for people to get in touch and ask them a question and keep the yeah. conversation going. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Certainly an uh, informative and educational session for me. I have tons of notes on it. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Fringe Legal. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the mind of innovators, sharing their ideas to inspire us all. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We hope these discussions have sparked your own ideas and helped you think about how you can put them into practice. Until next time, stay curious and keep pushing the boundaries.